Safer sex. Intercourse. Condoms. Sexually transmitted infection. HIV. HIV. Sexual health. Research. Treatment. Condoms. Sexual practice. Sexually transmitted infection. Health. Sexual specialist. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. My name is Tom, and you're listening to the Sydney Sexual Health Centre podcast, where we talk about all things related to sexual health. For World AIDS Day 2019, we are focusing on people who have made a positive impact for HIV. In this podcast, I'll be talking to Vicky Knight and Lizzie Griggs, nurses who have been working in the HIV sector in New South Wales since the 1980s. My first guest is Vicky Knight. Vicky is a clinical nurse consultant in sexual health and HIV. She has worked in the HIV sector since beginning her career as a nurse on Ward 17 South at St. Vincent's Hospital in the 1980s. Hi. Hi, Vicky. Hi, how are you? Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your current role with Sydney Sexual Health Centre? Sure. So I work as a clinical nurse consultant um, in sexual health and HIV, and my role covers a few domains. Um, so there's a part of it is education, um, a part of it is research, part of it is clinical leadership, and a part of it is um, consultancy. And what has your career looked like? Well, I've worked in the area of sexual health and HIV since pretty much um, finishing my nursing degree. Um, when I finished my nursing degree, to begin with, I worked for a year in an infectious dermatology ward. And at the time, that was where I got to see my first case of somebody with um, HIV uh, and uh, leprosy. <laughs> and and then I moved into HIV inpatient care uh, in New South Wales and from there I moved into the role that I have now. And what made you want to work in the area of HIV and sexual health? Well, I kind of stumbled into it actually. I enjoyed it when I did my year first year postgrad um, where I did get to see infectious diseases and I and I did think that I would like to work in the area of infectious diseases but things in my life moved me from Brisbane to Sydney and I went um, to a, an interview at St Vincent's Hospital um, where a whole bunch of nurses and probably 30 of us in the room were being talked uh, to from the Sisters of Mercy about the vacancies at the hospital. Um, at the time the Sisters of Mercy had people coming in to, from the emergency department to explain the way the emergency department worked and what it would be if, like if you worked there. They had someone coming from theatres to explain what theatres were like and what it would be like if you worked there. And we had a sheet in front of us that said, here's the vacancies. And one of the vacancies was on a ward called 17 South. And nobody came to talk to us about that ward, so I put my hand up and said, you know, what's 17 South? The response was not very charitable. Um, basically, they said, oh, that's a, a ward where you wouldn't want to work. Um, that's where all the AIDS patients are. Um, and, you know, there's lots of death and dying. And I thought to myself, oh, I don't really think that's quite equitable, actually. You know, you're showcasing all these other parts of the hospital, but not necessarily the ward that probably needs the most equity and care. So I 
decided that I would go and work on that ward. I was the only one in the intake that actually took up a position on that ward and it was the best move I ever made because it was a fantastic place to work. As someone born in the 80s, it's hard for me to imagine uh, what it was like for people during that time. Mm. Uh, what was a typical day like in Ward 17? Well, a colleague of mine, a nursing friend, um, a few years back wrote a piece um, in Positive Life and it was called Nursing in the War Zone. And really, that's what it was about. We were in a war zone. Um, so when I said it was a fantastic place to work, what I meant was it was a fantastic place to work because it was full of like-minded people who thought that everyone deserved equitable health care and everyone deserved, um, you know, compassion and empathy. Um, and it was also a fun place to work because, you know, we, we liked to go out after work and, you know, get together and drown our sorrows, but it, because in actual fact it was a really hard place to work. You know, it was the time before we had any antiretrovirals that worked. You know, most of the things we do were based in um, very tenuous evidence, um, if any evidence at all. Um, we were really flying by the seat of our pants trying to, um, you know, help these patients and in and in the end most of the time you were just assisting them to die and most of them died really awful tragic deaths um, often alone without any family or any supports and just their friends around them because at the time you know being gay wasn't socially acceptable um, so it was a very hard place to work, actually, um, and, and most of us burnt out, did, you know, didn't stay in that ward for, you know, huge amounts of time because you just couldn't. And how did the nursing workforce uh, stay resilient during this time? Yeah, I think we, we, as I said, we supported each other. You know, we, we, we went out after our shifts all the time to, you know, have a drink, probably drink too much, have a drink and, um, you know, reflect on the day or the week. Um, we liked, you know, to have fun. We had barbecues and picnics and we went in Mardi Gras parades and, you know, we just, we were just generally very kind to each other, I suppose, and supportive. It was a very supportive place to work. And are, are there any particular stories or patients you'd like to share? Yeah, I, um, I always remember this one person. I was only young when I started work there. I was only 21 and, um, you know, it's, it's quite confronting when you look after people your own age, <laughs> really, um, you know, because often healthcare has an older age group. Um, and I remember this one patient who was from Korea and I didn't know anything about Korea um, at the time. He was such a gentle soul. He was so lovely. And the thing that I remember about him is he was totally alone. He had no one. Nobody came to visit him. He didn't have any friends, he had no family, and he talked about how, you know, he was going to die a shameful death um, and he died alone. And I thought that was really awful and was probably the, the one case that kind of broke my spirit, I suppose. But you continued on. Yeah, I did continue on after that, picked myself up, dusted off, not for long after that actually. Um, 
I, um, my, my boss at St Vincent's at the time, Peter Boss, who was a fantastic boss, Peter Boss, whatever, he, um, we started seeing the first female patients coming onto the ward and we, although we had female nurses working there, there were a lot of male nurses as well, um, and he suggested that I should come to Sydney Hospital to do the sexual health and venereology course. And so he suggested that I do that, and that's exactly what I did. And when I came to this hospital and did the course, I decided that I liked that field, sexual health and HIV, so much um, that I wouldn't return to St Vincent's. Um, So I stayed in this area ever since. Thinking about the changes in HIV from the 80s until now, what was the change that brought about the uh, biggest impact for your work? It would definitely have to be antiretroviral therapies. I think, you know, bringing, having access to medications that, um, although the early ones were, you know, fraught, they had hideous side effects and caused irreparable damage, they actually kept people alive. And if you were lucky enough to, you know, stay alive until the next drug came out, then you stayed alive till the next drug came out. And so, you know, that to me has been the biggest game changer um, for making sure that 17 South doesn't happen anymore, that people don't die, you know, um, get infected and die and in fact live um, the length of life that they would live if they weren't infected with HIV in Australia. Uh, who are three people who have been the most influential throughout your career? Um, I have to say Peter Boss, being the nurse unit manager at, um, on 17 South. He was amazing. He wasn't my first nurse unit manager. The one before that was Helen McCabe and she was fantastic as well, but I, I spent most of my time with Peter Boss. Um, I think Basil Donovan has been a huge influence to me in my career. He's supported me through um, my transition from previous roles into the role that I have now. Um, And probably my mum and dad, actually, because they always encouraged me to do what it was that I wanted to do. And so long as it was, you know, something that respected people and um, was socially, you know, had a social justice feel, they were really encouraging of that. And um, that's what this sector is. Thanks, Vicky. My next guest is Lizzie Griggs. Lizzie has worked in the HIV sector for 34 years. In 1985, Lizzie pioneered the world's first nurse-led HIV-AIDS outreach service for male and transgender sex workers from the Albion Street Centre. She moved this service to Kirkton Road in 1990. Lizzie now works as a clinical nurse specialist in sexual health. Welcome, Lizzie. Hello. Hi, Tom. Thank you for having me. Um, What does your career look like? Okay, so... I um, I really fell into nursing. I was a barmaid in my parents' pub down in the Riverina. Um, they had just, we'd moved from Sydney, they'd bought a pub and I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll go and do my enrolled nursing and anyway, I ended up um, going into being a registered nurse and and. Um, and the school that I was training at, uh, the Narendra District Hospital, it was one of the first uh, schools uh, cut with all the health cuts that started in the late 70s. And so within 18 months, I was back in Sydney. 
which was fantastic. And so I finished my training at Prince Henry and Prince of Wales. So that was 1981. And then I travelled and I was working at RPA uh, as a registered nurse. And then I saw the I knew about um, HIV. I was looking at all the, you know, the gay men in America um, getting sick with some strange illness and whatever. And obviously I had a lot of gay friends and all of a sudden this ad popped up um, to be a nurse at the Albin Street Centre. They were going to open uh, an AIDS clinic. So I thought, well, I'm going to apply for that because I know so many gay men and I reckon it would be a fantastic job. Plus, I think they'd need people who weren't scared of um, being infected with HIV and whatever because people went nuts. People just went crazy with their ideas of how easy it would be to get infected. And I guess people, we didn't know a lot back then, but still, you know, the the whole... Um, uh, scaredness around getting infected when people knew it was just blood and, you know, bodily fluids sexually. Um, so that really ruled out a lot of people who would be willing to work in the area. But I very happily went over. So I was one of the first three nurses employed uh, to help open the Albine Street Centre and that was March 1985. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about what those early days were like at Alger? Okay, so, um, well, let me set the picture. Back then, when we first opened our doors at Albin Street and our first clients came into the clinic, Telstra said that they would never come back <laughs> to fix a phone if it had broken. The postman used to stand at the front door and throw the package of letters in onto the floor wouldn't come in to the clinic for fear that they were going to get infected. I mean, it was there was hysteria around how you could get HIV. Um, so you were really dealing with a lot of um, ignorance, a lot of fear. The stigmatisation and discrimination was huge. I remember, um, was it ANSET or TAA said um, that they wouldn't allow anyone on their planes if they knew that they had HIV. So one of my friends at the time who has since died from AIDS, but he was known as, as the AIDS living legend, Paul Young, um, he, as soon as that was advertised uh, in an article in the paper, he rang up to make a booking and declared that he was HIV positive. The, um, it was really, it was pretty wild in those days because we were learning as much at the same time as our clients were getting information. I mean, every day we'd get more and more information. It was such a steep learning curve. And basically, though, we were working with people who we were giving diagnoses to people like presenting, arriving with AIDS. There was no medication. There was nothing that we could do um, really to stop um, the replication of HIV. I mean, there were antibiotics and all sorts of different treatments for that different AIDS-defining illnesses that were developing with people. But, um, yeah, it was really, it was pretty hard. 
and, um, you know, you just saw beautiful young men just deteriorate in front of your eyes. I mean, Oxford Street was just full of people walking around who just looked like, you know, skeletons basically, people with disfigured by Kaposi's sarcoma, people with such terrible diarrhoea that, you know, they couldn't leave their house because they were, you know, they thought that they'd shit themselves, they wouldn't be able to go anywhere. It was just terrible, terrible, terrible. It was like a war zone, really. Yeah. But those were the days that you never told anyone you worked as a nurse in HIV because of all the bigotry and all the rest of it that would happen. People saying, oh, my God, all gay should be herded into a concentration camp, whatever, or they need things stamped on their foreheads and all terrible things people would say. I used to tell people, you know, that I sold shoes. Can you tell me about the establishment of the bus? When we uh, um, developed and opened the outreach bus, it was known as the AIDS outreach bus, the Albion Street AIDS bus, or we used to call it the Ugly. That was our nickname for it. But we worked on the streets. We used to do a 10-hour shift. We'd pick up the bus and we were working up at Green Park Um, on uh, Darlinghurst Road and then we'd go and we'd drive um, and we'd park outside the Elamang Fountain in King's Cross and then we'd do our last run uh, driving down um, Williams Street and handing out condoms and whatever. So on the bus we were doing HIV testing uh, so we'd test for all bloodborne viruses um, we didn't do any specific STI in terms of gonorrhea or chlamydia. We used to go and visit male um, parlours uh, and brothels in the area as well. In fact, before the bus um, was all set up, uh, Jeffrey Jackson and I uh, used to um, go to the different parlours just using the clinic car. And I mean, in those days, we were followed by Channel 9 um, a current affair and all sorts of stuff. We'd be getting followed and filmed and um, because, you know, they wanted to do whatever um, outrageous story, you know, that they could at the time. Um, but we used to be bombarded by our clients. We'd open the doors at Green Park and the bus would be full of young men aged anywhere from 15 to somewhere in their 20s. We try and get them back to Albion Street if we felt that, you know, they needed to see a doctor. Um, A lot of the guys were working opportunistically, not always for money. They were working for a roof over their head, for clothes, for being, you know, taken out for dinner, all sorts of stuff. Um, Quite a number of the guys had been thrown out by their their families once they had come out and said they were gay. Um, yeah, it was um, it was pretty wild at the time. And back then, I guess you, you need to remember there was no mobile phones, <laughs> and um, and there were the, the police thought we were insane going out there in the first place. They basically said, you know, whatever happens to you happens to you. 
And so we did have a situation where these vigilantes came in to bash all the poofters and kill the poofters who were um, spreading AIDS, as they used to say in those days. And um, so this mob of men came in from wherever in the suburbs with um, baseball bats and bricks and um, other other weapons to attack the boys on the wall and kill them, you know, do a lot of harm anyway. And they all came to the bus as their refuge. So we were were surrounded um, and the bus being... um, shaken and pushed and rocked and all the rest of it and so we managed to get away but that was the very first time uh that was the thing that triggered sorry um the liaison with the police and from that the gay liaison and everything started so the police really had to step up to the mat after this situation because you know they couldn't be seen to be ignoring you know um, healthcare workers out on the street, leaving us to our own fate, which is what they wanted to do. So, you know, that, that they were all the things that sort of came from that and then the liaison developed further and further. We had a relationship with the police. Um, we eventually, um, we had a two-way radio. Then eventually we had the old brick when the very first um, mobile phone came out. So police were told that if we put in a call, they had to respond. And so it was rare that we ever needed to, but sometimes we did. And um, and the, the police did respond. So we'd have to warn everyone that the police were coming, whoever didn't want to hang around, not to hang around. Um, and sometimes the police... <laughs> did overkill we had one time I can't remember what we rang up for but the next thing we had cop cars everywhere we had police on horseback we had police on motorbikes and we're sitting there going oh my god what are we going to tell them like you know the person that had been acting in a threatening way had already left and we had the cavalry had arrived you know it was so embarrassing anyway so um yeah, so, but, you know, you were out there, anything could happen. You were dealing with people overdosing in front of you. Um, we didn't ever have um, Narcan on the bus. I mean, Kirkton Road wasn't even open at this stage. This is pre-Kirkton Road. So we'd be trying to get people down to St Vincent's Hospital, um, just call the ambulance, whatever. Yeah, so, but, you know, all the time that we were out on the street, we had a lot of respect from our clients. No one ever tried to bully us or rob us or they were, in fact, our clients were really protective of us. Needle syringe programs are now considered an essential part of an effective public health response to HIV, and it's now global best practice. Though at the time you were handing out clean needles from the bus illegally, how did this come about? When Alex Wodak started the first NSP uh, down at his um, service at St V's, well, we thought, okay, we'll do the outreach. And so we were illegally doing NSP as early as we could and part of the outreach bus was when it went back to bed at the hospital 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning, whatever time we got back there, then we would do street work. We'd go to the different bars in the cross, then we'd hit um, Oxford Street. 
from the bottom of Oxford Street all the way up, you know, to the Aubrey, and we would end up at the taxi club, which no longer exists, but that's where we'd see all of our transgender workers <laughs> at the end of their shift because the taxi club was their club. But we were doing condoms and we were doing needles and um, very surreptitiously because that's the, the law still was that if you were caught with equipment, you could go down for um, possession. And so then, of course, all the laws had to change that allowed NSP to become legal and we already had the relationship with the police then. In the meantime, Kirkton Road had opened um, and we had a relationship with the police so we were able to say stay away from us because at first they were, you know, grabbing people further up the street um, after they'd been to the bus and whatever. So it was really great. In those days we had... We had like the, the 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 hotline to AIDS infectious diseases branch. Um, they were so supportive. Whatever we were doing on the street and needed to be done was written into policy to support what we were doing. It wasn't the other way around. We were inventing it as we went along, and whatever worked got written into policy as much as they could. I mean, today, can you imagine? It just would not go the same way today if what happened then happened now. Mm-hmm. You know, and all the incredible activism and everything that went on with Get Up, um, it, like things just would not have been um, made into policy and things made available and drugs made available at affordable prices and all the rest of it. Like the gay community just totally mobilised and um, and lesbians mobilised behind them and family and friends and, and the services and people just kept pushing until the things that were really needed um, happened. So it's less like that today. Um, it was pretty exciting times. Mm. How did you and uh, the nursing workforce stay resilient during this time? I think we smoked a lot of cigarettes and we drank a lot of alcohol. (laughs) Um, Yeah, back then you didn't, there was no such thing as really being debriefed in stuff. Um, I did give up smoking in 1985 when I did start at Harbin Street because I got so sick with tonsillitis. I thought I've got to give up smoking. I was never a huge drinker, having said that. Um, but there was a lot of um, partying together. We All the people that worked together became very, very close. Um, we'd all go out together and, um, you know, you'd go off for Friday night drinks or or whatever it was. So, but there wasn't anything formalized. It really was just your own group having your own laugh. You had to laugh seriously. You had to laugh because, um, I mean, nurses are known for their black sense of humor anyway, and doctors and stuff. But if you didn't have that, I don't know uh, what we would have done. You also worked in the Ministry of Health. Can you tell me about your time there? <laughs> Uh, so then I went from um, Albion Street, we took the bus to Kirkton Road yeah. and I left Kirkton Road in 93 and then I was invited to work in 
the Department of Health at the time, or the Ministry of Health as it's known now, in the AIDS Infectious Diseases Branch, as it was known then, um, just for three months to do, uh, to lead um, AIDS notification or look backing notifications to help raise funds for HIV AIDS services in New South Wales. So 13 years later, <laughs> I was still there. And um, my role was as the HIV AIDS surveillance officer for the state. So I work close with the Kirby because, you know, they hold the national database as well, like we shared data and stuff. And um, and I used to do all the HIV notification follow-ups with GPs. I led for years and, well, every year we did an AIDS notification um, uh, follow-up of every major hospital um, through all sorts of different ways, had to be a real Sherlock Holmes. And in the first five years, um, I found over $20 million of funding that otherwise wouldn't have gone to um, HIV AIDS services. So I was pretty happy about that. And you have to remember, because back then people were very suspicious of um, wanting to be notified because they felt it would be full name, people would be able to find out. Even the doctors were very reluctant about notifying because of the, the privacy concerns. So it was a really big, um, big liaising job uh, with the various doctors who worked in the field. And I was lucky because I had met most of the doctors who are still working in HIV um, as GPs and SDI specialists, I met all of them in my first years of uh, working um, in HIV from Albion Street days. So I was really lucky that I already had those relationships established with a lot of the people. Uh, you've just recently won an ACON Honour Award for yes. Outstanding Achievement. Uh, <laughs> uh, can you tell me what it was like uh, having your achievements recognised in this way? Oh, it almost makes me cry. Um, I am going to cry. It was so lovely, you know. It was really sweet, but... I mean, I know, I feel like a dinosaur, seriously. I've been around for so long and um, and I have seen it from beginning to where we are now. And it's, it's really interesting when I, I work with some of the younger guys who are peers at A-Test and everything and they say something and I say, oh, I remember blah, 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 and they go, what? <laughs> How do you know that? I go, well, I was there. <laughs> So I do feel a bit like a dinosaur, but um, and I, it just feels wonderful to have had that acknowledgement um, of of my work. I'm so I'm so thrilled and so honoured that that it, that it happened. You know, so I mean, it was what we were doing back in the day with the bus. It was a world first um, outreach project. You know, most of the NSP mobile outreach was based on that bus. In fact, we trained a lot of the people who were doing the initial NSP outreach. They would come to our bus. We had every politician on that freaking bus 
um, reviewing what we were doing. We had so many visitors from overseas. I was able to get funding and went to San Francisco and New York and I visited their bus that they'd based on our bus. I'll just say it's the best. I don't think I could have had a better career. I'm so lucky. I'm really, really lucky to have been in the right place at the right time when something really horrible was happening. The amazing people that I've met over the years, especially in those early years, really brave, fantastic people, a lot who are dead now, but also so much fun, so much laughing, you know, and the real sense of community that I think lacks, lacks a bit today. Thank you, Lizzie, for sharing some of your stories with us today. This has been the Sydney Sexual Health Centre podcast for World AIDS Day 2019. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn to stay up to date with the latest news related to sexual health. If you like the podcast, please share the link and subscribe.